everyone. Welcome to the show Off the Record. I'm Aram Mahmoud, the host. Uh, thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about how to spend the money you raise effectively and what mistakes to avoid. Uh, the guests that are on the show have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share from company stories, failures, and successes. As the founder, you'll hear what you can do better when raising money after you have raised it, all in a 30-minute conversation. And if you happen to be a VC, you're also in luck this is the right spot that you'll get to learn from your peers. So this is episode number six of Off the Record, and I'm here with Lou Zhang uh, from Fusion Fund. Quick bio on, on Lou before I, I, uh, I intro her. Um, Lou is the founder and managing partner of Fusion Fund, a renowned Silicon Valley-based investor, a serial entrepreneur, and a Stanford engineering alumna. Uh, Fusion Fund is active in supporting early stage entrepreneurs who are looking to build globally disruptive companies using innovative technologies to drive systemic change originating from the US market. And prior to starting Fusion Fund, Lou was the founder and CEO of a medical device company focused on non-invasive technology for the early diagnosis of type two diabetes. And her company was acquired in 2012. Thank you so much for being on our show, Lou. Great to have you. Yeah, so thank you for having me. So glad to be here to share some insights with everyone. Awesome, thank you. Uh, let's jump into it. Uh, first, first question I wanted to ask was you, you sold your, your last company and you went into the venture capital space. Like what, what made you, what drew, what drew your attention into going into investing in the first place? Yeah, that's a very popular question that I got asked from different interviews because people always assume that because I started my first company, a medical device company when I was 21. So after I sold it to Boston Certificate, a lot of people think I'm going to do a second one. That's also my original plan. But uh, along my journey as an entrepreneur, I had experience working with different type of VC. And also I was able to know another group of awesome VC focused on deep tech and healthcare. So after I got pretty good financial return from my own company, I started investing initially with a motivation to support other fellow, you know, very strong founder with deep tech and healthcare focus. And unfortunately back, back in 2013, 2014, I would say the popular trend in Silicon Valley is more on the consumer tech rather than the deep tech and the healthcare. So I got advantages as one of the few investing investing into that uh, sector. So I was very lucky investing in tons of very good company and got very good personal return, which drive me to really think about, uh, you know, choosing VC as a potential career path. And I got support from other, you know, joined a VC from billion dollar firm as a partner, venture partner, and later got the capital support from LP to launch my own fund, the Fusion Fund, five years ago. So I. I did trade my uh, Fusion Fund as my second startup. It's a startup VC. We're gonna do things differently from traditional VC and we're able to identify the unique opportunity within the deep tech and healthcare sector from day one. Mm -hmm. Awesome, it's a, it's a really an amazing background you have in terms of how you went at a young age into uh, the venture capital space. Um, when we went to connect before, one of the things that you, you shared with us is that valuation is an illusion and revenue is a true metric. Can we spend some time talking about that? I want to kind of learn more in terms of what you mean by that. Yeah, the reason I said valuation is an illusion is because the, especially back in 2015 or 2017, I think at early stage, lots of founders consider their company value equivalent to the valuation they got from the market from the VC. 
but the truth is uh, the valuation is actually is a reflection and a calculation of how much dilution and both founder wanted to uh, okay to take and also was able to get a reasonable funding from VC side. That's how we came up with the number of valuation to make sure the dilution number of each round proportion to how much money they raise is reasonable. But on the other side, uh, I saw many funders they were trying to, for example, raise a very small round but push a valuation to extremely high, like 20 million pre-money valuation for a C state, but only raising 2 million. Then that doesn't make sense. You know, the dilution is so little, but you push yourself to such a high valuation, which not necessarily reflect the value of the company when they're trying to raise the next round of fundraising. They could not justify the number. Then they potentially facing a down round. And the down round, you know, there are lots of consequences after down round. Especially this year, because of COVID-19, the first half of this year, there's lots of uh, discount of the valuation in average like 20, 30% haircut of the valuation for early stage founder. So whoever has a relative high or even like unreasonable high valuation for the previous round, they have an even harder time to raise money in the later stage. But on the other side, which also kind of a reflection of the market, we've been focused on B2B healthcare uh, investment for many years. So we really wanted to help founder increase their revenue because the solid revenue traction number is a true reflection of the value of the company, which also is kind of what's happening now within the market. Even though back in 2017, probably we joke about every company got funded, too much capital, try to identify the company with potential hyper growth in the next couple of years, not necessarily have a sustainable business model. But now all the story changed. VC tried to fund the company with sustainable business model, with a solid traction of pipeline, and it was a very good you know, revenue flow from previous rates or even in the project in the next couple of years. So that's the reason I said, you know, funder need to think about what is the proper number in different rounds. Um, consider all the dilution, valuation, and also the money rates, rather than really think the valuation reflect the value of the company. And when when you have an invest, uh, when you have a founder that comes to you and they, you know, come with like a pretty large uh, valuation, how do you um, rationalize with them in terms of? Uh, their logic with their approach and like how do you find like a common ground? Yeah, so for me, I will do a very uh, I would say logic analysis with the founder like how much how much money you you needed for this round to achieve the next milestone. I think lots of time the reason founder, especially the first time founder, they probably just get a valuation somewhere from the investor is because they don't really understand how to structure a round. And in terms of structure around, for example, how much to raise definitely depends on how much money they needed. And meanwhile, also depends on their next milestone. For example, if this company need $4 million to reach the next milestone, we're gonna trigger their next fundraising. So this should be the amount of minimum amount of money they needed for this round of raising. And then come back to see like, okay, how much dilution you could take for this fundraising, like 10%, 20% proportional, you could calculate the potential valuation range. So that's a very logical way to calculate. But uh, use the example I mentioned earlier, if the company only raising like a million dollar with 20 million prey, uh, dilution is little, but on the other side, whether this a million is enough for them to reach next milestone, not necessary. And on the other side, sometimes founder may not really consider the dilution, only think about I need to increase the round size as much as possible. So I think this all 
come back to how to structure around. Even, you know, there's a scenario that, okay, founder did a calculation, I need this much amount of capital to reach next milestone, but it seems like my current attraction could not support the valuation after the calculation. Then founder could rethink about the structure of fundraising, whether you want to do a one round of fundraising or you do a small bridge round with some really true believer of the company from some smaller investor to help you reach the milestone for you to justify the valuation then to raise a bigger round. And with, with your experience, and you've probably had a lot of different founders come to you for their fundraising asks at different times, what can you share with the listeners in terms of when is the best time to do fundraising as a founder or as like a leadership team? Yeah, this might sound weird to founder, but the best time to raise money is when you have the money. <laughs> Most of founders, especially first time founder, uh, we also saw this, uh, happened with some of the company invested before that they have a great traction of the revenue and their their basic the runway is uh, kind of three months and four months that's when they want to start fundraising uh even they have great traction the, the challenge of only have three or four months of fundraising before running the money is uh it's really challenging because negotiation finding the potential lead structure the whole round you know negotiate all the detailed terms take times, it's just logistic times. And meanwhile, even you've got the term sheet, how to really structure around do all the rest of the co-investor selection will take another couple of months. And then at the beginning, there's a due diligence time. So just practically, always leave at least a six months buffer. If you look at your financial, okay, I have at least another nine months of a runway, then you need to, need to start fundraising within three months. That's minimum. That's one thing. Another thing, the reason I said uh, the best time to raise money is when you have money, it's not necessarily your runway correlated with your fundraising pace. The thing really correlated with fundraising pace is your milestone. Whenever the good founder knows, okay, I achieve a milestone and I could engineering this milestone into a good story that at this point, although I have money, but I have projected growth and I have, uh, this uh, motivation to raise more capital in order to further growth from here. So now after achieving this uh, milestone, this is the turning point. That's how good founders are going to engineer in the story to project to VC. Rather than saying that the reason I'm raising money because I'm running out of money. That's the worst reason, uh, no matter from founder side or investor side, uh, to decide to raise money. Excuse my dog. That's okay. That <laughs> so is... Working from home. <laughs> no problem. Um... We've been the same thing that six months is seems to be like the, the golden time, you know, in terms of how much cash runway you should have when you're raising. Um, a lot of other people say that fundraising is happening all the time. It's like a full time yes, job. Yes. That's um, exactly what I wanted to add in is, you know, there's official fundraising time. There's unofficial fundraising time. Fundraising is, is always happen like have soft conversation with investor, always take an investor meeting whenever there's investor reach out and have regular newsletter updates, not only with internal, but also external general newsletter updates to, to keep yourself under the radar, especially for a founder, not necessarily based in Silicon Valley. We have 40% of our company that are based outside of Silicon Valley. So how to make sure you're under VC's radar, they will think about you whenever uh, they are thinking about allocate more capital. And also this year, you know, COVID-19, make it harder for fundraising for founder. Have cap regular catch-up updates really helps, you know, facilitate the conversation and whenever time is right, saying that, okay, I've already updated you with all the progress we have. We already deliver 
other thing we promised, now we are officially launching our fundraising. The, then the time spent for finding a lead, lead potential lead investor will be more efficient. With um, when a founder approach or when the management team approaches you, um, how important is it for you to review and analyze their projections, like cash flow projections? Like how much of that do you take into account uh, when you're doing your uh, due diligence? You mean the projection of your revenue of their revenue or runway? The revenue. revenue. I think it's important, but. Uh, but actually, in general, us and also VC won't 100% believe on founders' projection. Sometimes I joke, especially for a seed Series A stage company, we mainly invest. 90% uh, of the time, the founder projection will turns out to be wrong. But it's important for us to see the projection model because we could we could really, from the model, understand the analysis logic and the rationale from the founder side, how he really break down of the potential revenue growth and whether he understand where is the hurdle, where is the opportunity and uh, where they need to allocate resources and capital to further growth. I think that's mindset we want to really understand from the model rather than specific numbers. But sometimes numbers also matters because that's also correlate to the projected you know, total market size and how they understand the market and what is the existing addressable market size and the potential for future uh, market uh, they could further expanding to, which relate to the exit potential. That's very interesting. Uh, and just out of curiosity, have you had any companies in your portfolio get affected with, uh, with everything that happened in 2020 with the whole pandemic? Did any of you and say, we've got to pivot, we've got to change focus. What did that look like? And what, like, how did you review their decision making? Uh, I would say definitely, I think uh, lots of VC at the first half of this year, our focus is really support and help our existing portfolio because it's a challenging year. Like back in March, I was having a meeting, my team was having a meeting with all the portfolio founder to make sure they have at least 18 months of runway. We're not asking them for 12 months. We try to make sure no matter they do cost reduction, I'll try to raise more money, I'll increase revenue, need to have at least 18 months of a runway to prepare because this challenge, we call it a game. The first half is about surviving. So survivor is gonna be the eventual, you know, the ultimate winner in the second half because much less competitor. So we, luckily we had enough preparation at the beginning. So we don't have founder, our company really have runway issue, but we definitely have several company they got impact from COVID because of the revenue flow that some of their customer delayed the payment. So they need to run the company more cost efficient internally to make sure, you know, the runway is as uh, projected. But majority of my portfolio, that's the reason I said this year is a good year for us. We've been focused on digital transformation for enterprise industry tech since 2017. Another major is uh, healthcare because I'm a healthcare background. And this year pandemic did a did couple of good things, including push the trend of digital transformation. So many of our company have rapid growth of revenue. When revenue grow, fundraising come along. Another is healthcare. So we have several healthcare company did very well. They also support the pandemic, the COVID-19 effort. They also, meanwhile, quickly integrate with the traditional large, huge uh, healthcare system, even getting a couple million contract from the pharmaceutical company like Pfizer Nova Artists, which typically gonna take years for them to close. But now this year, the uh, sales cycle getting much shorter. So I think it's really about how to better prepare before the, you know, the pandemic happened, then, you know, uh, the company and us will be able to take the challenge as opportunity to really stand out. 
it's really interesting. You kind of already gave some some suggestions here, but let me let me ask a question around how how as a founder you should be structuring your capital needs uh, at the next round. Like, what do they need to think about? You, you talked about some some points. Maybe you could shed some light on some other uh, tips. You mean so when they are structured a new round? Yes, yeah, so yeah, I like think. What yeah, so I think the first thing is uh, from the capital side, we kind of uh, tackle it a little bit already. How much you need to reach the next milestone to trigger the next round of fundraising. And also meanwhile, dilution proportion, et cetera. So that's how to do the calculation of the, of the metrics to have a, a range internally, rather than, you know, I just want the VC to give me a valuation because it's really hard for, for a founder to shop around to term shit if you give it to VC to give you a valuation rather than you think through it yourself. Another thing about structure around is really about the timing of how to do the fundraising. Who be, will be gonna be your potential candidates for lead investor? For especially Series A and up, even for seed round, recently have a company called Seed Round. It's a seven million seed round. So the seed round has become the uh, kind of the Series A maybe five years ago in terms of well, sound. So yeah, the participant uh, type of the VC. So I think for founder really think about have a list of uh, targeted lead investor uh, in the industry. Do some research first, and then once you really have the list, you'll be able to focus on trying to find the lead at the first two or three months and while collect the interest from co-investor. That's also the game plan. The founder need to prepare in advance before start reaching out, taking the conversation. So once it's like logistic, logical analysis of numbers, another is the game plan of how to do the fundraising. And so- and Yeah, in terms of structure around, also choosing who to become your lead investor and who to be the major co-investor is also critical. Whether you're choosing, you're working with strategic investor in terms of lead investor, how much value add-on services you could provide it, and also how to balance the power between different investors because you probably need to have some of them sit on your board. How to do the board management, which trace back to which type of investor you're gonna choose. Uh, this is all the thing founder need to consider when they start fundraising. That's the reason we joke about fundraising is a full-time job. But unfortunately, as a startup CEO, you're doing three or four different type of full-time job at the same time. I, I want to get your perspective on uh, on giving up board seats. Um, some founders that we speak to on on the show say, you know, don't give them out freely. Really do your research on the investors that you're going to be bringing in because, like, essentially it's a marriage it's yeah could be a actually more expensive uh divorce right than in a typical marriage what 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 advice can you give to founders um around voting control and and um and to give up board seats yeah the first thing as i quickly mentioned the balance of the board right which type of person you want to have the board which also relates to the self-evaluation of the founder like whether founders think I'm strong in execution, I'm strong in sales marketing, which part are missing, you could try to find the investor who truly supported you on that side. Another thing is lead investor, you know, common courtesy will have the board seats. Then really think about how to set up the expectation, the right expectation, and also the communication at the beginning. What is the approach you want to manage the board? Which type of communication you want to have? 
And the quality of the board member definitely is critical. As you said, it's a marriage. It's not only a marriage between founder and this person sitting on the board. It's also going to impact your potential future marriage with other investors. For example, for us, we definitely prefer to be the lead investor sit on the board when we invest around. But it, we're also okay to co-invest. When we co-invest, the last thing really matters is want to see who's going to be the lead investor, who's going to sit on the board. Sometimes we saw a great company, good founder, their, their board selection was not that good. Then we definitely have concern because in the critical point of the company, especially me, I'm a, as a former entrepreneur, all my partners, I including my team, were former entrepreneurs. We understand the life cycle of a startup. It's always up and down. Even the best tech company is not like, like straight line. It's always up and down. So board is critical when the company is in the downturn to make the right decision. But sometimes if the founder does not have the right person, our non-professional investor on the board, they probably will be the first one to run out from the battle when the company on the uh, is during the going through the downturn. Then us, we feel insecure. That's the reason, you know, it's really critical to choose the right people with a good reputation, good quality, good add-on value, and also could really bring the positive energy to the dynamic of the board. To the, uh, to the board member. Another thing is how to manage the board is really related to the uh, set up the expectation. Sometimes I told founder like have the board meeting before the board meeting. So have individual small chat with each board member before the board meeting to make sure you know everything is aligned. Then the board meeting could be run super efficiently. Wow, that's fantastic insight. Thank you, Lou. Um, I wanna ask about how involved should a VC be when they invest into a company um like how hands-on are you for example when you know with your investment uh, like portfolio companies is it like a day-to-day uh, -day, weekly monthly check-ins like how how do you support them yeah uh definitely there's a difference between the company we sit on the board and also the company we just co-investor we have roughly 30 percent we have over 60 portfolio company already we have roughly 30 percent of company will sit on the board so for the company we sit on the board we definitely have a more frequent communication with founder sometimes maybe founder just random call me or text message me every other days uh regularly we definitely have regular board meeting bi-weekly check-in for sure but for all the company minimum will have monthly check-in and catch-up meeting uh, in general to understand what founder truly need one thing i always tell founder after we join on board is don't just tell, just tell me the good news well founder always tell me good news i worry because i know like running a startup is a battle it's a miserable life it's about making small and big mistakes every single day so tell me the bad news and we could help you guys to to avoid the critical you know mistake and meanwhile uh, be able to further support a founder so that's the main thing we try to help founder on another thing you talk about how much engagement right they want to be supportive but on the other side as a formal founder i hate micromanagement so i truly believe all the good founder hate micromanagement too so we definitely want founder to be the captain and we are their go-to person and we support them whenever which type of help they need we just uh, be on it. Whenever they assign tasks to us, we're gonna finish the task and deliver as soon as possible. And the main two things we uh, we deploy lots of resources. One thing is help them increase the revenue, especially for early stage tech company. I think the one of the big challenge for them is to find a connection to talk the truly decision maker uh, in their clients' corporate. 
sometimes they have a very good engagement with the engineering team, but maybe the CFO or CTO is the ultimate decision maker. So we build a CXO network. So far we have 32 members in the network across all Fortune 1000 company within different sectors. They're all CTO, all CDO, all CIO. So whenever there's a needs from our founder would be able to quickly connect them to talk with the decision maker to make the sales cycle much shorter. In general, B2B sales cycle could last to three, six months, even longer. But now with our help, they were able to close a three months or even, even shorter period of time, especially during COVID-19, you know, during the pandemic with our in-person meeting, this is critical. So help them increase the revenue, be more efficient in terms of sales and marketing. Another part is uh, fundraising. Um, as your question asks, you know, lots of founders probably have to spend lots of time thinking about how to structure around, how to choose the right investor. But you know, we're investors, we know the industry so well. So we help them kind of design a whole kind of game plan, how to do fundraising, fundraising structure, et cetera. So far we have pretty good success. Even for this year, we have we have eight or nine companies close a new round this year. All of them, 100% oversubscribed. The, the most one, they were trying to raise a 35 C round, 35 million dollar C round. That's the round size. The company closed 70 million C round. So it's 200% oversubscribed. So that's the, the structure we help founders set up and also game plan list of the investor quickly run it through to make sure they could close the fundraising um, efficiently. And the last one related to that is whenever they start a negotiation with potential buyer, I'll prepare for IPO because me and my partners, we all went through this, either go through merge acquisition or IPO. So we know the process, we help them do the negotiation, help them bring multiple, multiple buyers and uh, make sure the valuation could get higher than to quickly go through the exit uh, process as well. You, you mentioned the micromanagement part. I, I'm really curious in terms of what you could share around uh, seasoned founders who you work with in terms of you know you being maybe less hands-on with them versus first-time founders that you invest in who probably need a little bit more a TLC and I, I love to know what is it that you can tell to the first-time founders that you see really seasoned founders doing well that you could kind of uh, give some advice on. Yes, I will say when we talk about micromanagement, uh, I'm more, I, I was more referring to that uh, we, we won't help, we won't make decision for founder, but we give all the resources and feedback and also the suggestion to founder, but still have founder to make the final decision. That's, that's how I distinguish between, you know, micromanagement and really super, super supportive. So I would say like definitely there's a difference between you know, repeating success of founder, sitting on entrepreneur and the first time founder. We have pretty healthy ratio. We have one third of the founder we invested, they are repeating successful founder. We're in this community, so definitely they're very easy to work with. So mm -hmm. our work to them is more about, you know, connecting, um, making intros, connections, uh, just uh, a different point of contact. But also meanwhile, we do a lot of industry report. We try to always make sure we're ahead of the wave. We understand, you know, what is critical, challenging for the technical into technology integration between the technology owner and the industry decision maker, like the CXO network we have. And then we share the insights with this type of founder. They were able to quickly, you know, adjust their, their solution, their technology solution to better integrate with their cloud customer. But for the first time founder, I would say definitely there's a more hand holding at the beginning, especially from the man side, from the methodology. Uh, perspective how to you know do the operation which type of right person to choose from 
but as I said, we're more like tell them how to fish, but they will need to catch the fish themselves. So they're still the captain. And between the one, one simple example, the difference between seasonal entrepreneur and first time founder is the attitude to uh, valuation. Really to the question you asked before, right? Actually, we found most of the repeating successful founder, they're not obsessed with valuation. They, they rather have a reasonable valuation, but control the wrong sides and then being super picky on who gonna be their early stage investor. They want to make sure whoever into this round gonna really dedicate their time and resources to help them grow to grow to the next stage, series A, B stage, rather than, you know, just a push the valuation to very high in order to raise a huge amount of capital up, uh, up front. But a lot of first time founders, especially relative young founder, if they found, oh, there's a chance, oh, it's a just YC demo day, so many people are so interested in my company, I'm gonna push the valuation to extremely high. Then in the next round has the consequences, you know, hard to justify the valuation in the near future. So I think that's a one simple. Another thing is a uh, truth between the investors, like a certain repeating successful founder, they will really value uh, investor with for, uh, former operation experience. And even <laughs> sometimes we joke about uh, as a former founder, when I was a founder, I hate VC. <laughs> I was joking with uh, other founder and investor friends, but lots of repeating founder, they also not necessarily always have a very good experience with Sand Hill billion dollar firm. So they will rather choose uh, maybe smaller firm like 100 million, 200 million dollar size firm like us uh, at the beginning to truly support them and also still take money from Sand Hill firm around Series A to get enough capital to support them along the way. But the first time founder would be fascinated by the brand name. They want a big brand name from Sand Hill to help them in terms of reputation, in terms of the branding, which is understandable. Uh, but you know, unless it's a consumer product, but for B2B to the end, it's really about how much resources their investor could allocate to them. Give you an example, like not specific to which firm, but just in average lots of billion dollar Sand Hill firm, each partner may sit on more than 10 or 15 uh, board seats at the same time. So think about how much time they're gonna be able to allocate to early stage company. Even they're putting like sizable like two or three million dollars. But even two three million dollars, it's a very small check for them consider their fund size. So that's the thing repeating successful founder will consider. Uh, but sometimes first time founder may not really think it through before they choose who to whose money to take. And with in regards to like the first time founders, um, have you? Do you give any kind of frameworks or processes in terms of managing their burn or their capital distribution needs um, versus like a seasoned founder? Any like, do you see like a big difference between like the two in terms of how they manage the cash and their burn and how they forecast? Um, there's some difference, but I would say I also see very good first-time founder. They manage their cost. Uh, that's being so cost efficient. And I have several like a company, their first time founder, every time they tell me the like runway is like 24 months in runway, I'm like, that's too long. <laughs> 18 months is good enough. So I think it's really more about the personality and the perspective of how they want to run the company. And uh, so we try to help the founder to balance of being cost efficient on the other, on the other side of, uh, you know, still have a potential of a rapid growth. In terms of, uh, you know, methodology for company to really think about how to uh, use the cash, I think it's really depends on which stage, right? Each stage company should have a major focus and always make sure you concentrate your 
resource and capital to the most the most important part rather than trying to do everything all together. We always say one thing is then it's better than perfect. Then it's better than perfect, especially at early stage. Get the most critical thing, then deliver, ship it, and then try to perfect it uh, together along with your customer. It's not only applied to the software company, even sometimes with a company that are doing hardware software integration, they try to build a 4.0 solution, like fancy solution to provide to their customer. But the customer might be a manufacturer in like Midwest and they only have an outdated infrastructure. They only could afford like 3.0 solution. And there's no way they could upgrade their infrastructure to adapt to a 4.0 solution. So sometimes it's important for founder to understand it and integrate first and then upgrade together with their customer. That's the reason I said, you know, then it's better than perfect and the concentrated resource and capital the most important thing. And meanwhile, you know, there are some small tricks, for example, uh, definitely to a certain stage, the turning point of the revenue growth that the founder want to find the VP of sales or sales person to help them drive the revenue and the salesperson are expensive. So not necessary company need to have a full-time salesperson at the beginning. You could make it flexible for them to have several part-time salesperson in different region. Don't pay them compensation, but pay high commission. Then, you know, there's a healthy model and also very cost efficient way to run a relatively bigger sales team rather than have a full-time sales uh, VP of sales sitting in their company with no team to manage. So same thing like that, like for CFO, for other operation role, uh, this is the part sometimes repeating founder will do better because they went through it. They make the mistake already before. But first time founders, sometimes they may suffer a little bit. We definitely would help them. But I don't worry, you know, sometimes first time founder may make small mistake here or there. You know, people learn by making small mistakes. But as you said, but as I said, you know, we try to help them avoid critical mistake. As long as you're, you're making mistakes that learning from may recover it, quickly grow, that's fine. That's fantastic insight. Um, just a couple more questions, Lou. Um, I wanted to ask, as a first-time founder, um, when you invest in them, especially in like the seed stage, uh, like early on, a lot of them, it's kind of like a big break for them that they're gonna get some outside capital. And some of them probably haven't been paying themselves anywhere close to market rates. What's your perspective on them or you being okay with them having uh, a salary that they draw from from the capital which they raise uh, like what's your what's your point of view on that? yeah on one side we definitely want to see the dedication from the founder uh, if we saw a company you know founder is paying very high salary uh, to themselves uh, while the cash flow situation is not very good in the company definitely it's a red flag for us right because mm -hmm. you know uh, for anyone especially in Silicon Valley there are so many opportunities you could make very decent salary compensation working any tech company right now. But uh, if the founder choose to build something, means they foresee their potential return is from, from the equity rather from the salary. But on the other side, I also want founder to be able to support themselves. So one suggestion I sometimes give it to founder is if a company have you know very limited cash, is tight, then probably reduce your salary to make sure company have good cash flow. But you could also make it a way that actually company own your money. You just uh, kind of pay you later. So if you raise a much bigger round, series A, B round, then could you, you could return that uh, portion of the salary. Then you still be able to support your, uh, uh, your life. But the, the truth is, you know, running a startup is a really challenging, challenging. 
<laughs> experience and the founder need to have their expectation that no matter from the short-term cash return or even the everything, you know, probably will lower the life standards in certain way. And there's no way you can maintain the same same standard as you're working in a large tech company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we try to also help founder to find a good balance and be able to make sure we don't want founder to be distracted. If they need to worry about their, their kids, their, their family, this is not a good thing as well. But meanwhile, also need to make sure, you know, company growth is the first priority for the founder, for investor, for every shareholder. Awesome. Awesome. Last question to, uh, to wrap it up. Liz. I want to ask, and I always like asking this at the end is what advice would you give to a smart driven entrepreneur who's looking to raise capital early next year? And what advice should they ignore as well? Yeah, so next year actually is a good year because uh, even, you know, compared with 2008 or 2000, at that time is when financial crisis happened, you know, (laughs) it's a dead zone in VC. Nobody is investing. Very uh, like a huge reduce of the total amount of capital in VC capital, in VC industry. But this year, you know, we have another historical high total amount of capital flowing to into VC. So there's lots of capital available on the market for investment. And meanwhile, you know, we always talk about downturn is the best time to invest in early stage company, which is true. And we should also make lots of VC, including us, are prepare ourselves to be ready to invest in more company in the next year. This year, we're, we're also very active. Even during COVID, we were able to set up this, uh, no matter social distance, in-person hiking meeting, our outdoor meeting in our office in downtown Palo Alto to have in-person meeting with founder to close deal. We closed the sixth deal, about to close seventh. We expect to do more deals next year. I heard from my fellow other VC friends, they're also expecting to do more deals next year, especially for the ones take like three or six months time off the first half of this year. So there will be a lot of capital available on the market for 2021. So good thing for founder. But on the other side, the VCR changing behavior means more VCR invest more concentrated. So top 10 or 20% of the company will got much bigger round, but the rest of the company may have a harder time to raise money, even you lower your valuation. Now quality really matters more than the metrics or the, the valuation. So as we discussed at the previous questions, you know, it's really important for founder to, to justify the valuation, to have enough traction uh, product market fit and also be able to engineering and uh, set up your game plan for fundraising to be ready to be prepared for that. So that's very important. And the last general suggest to all the founders, especially first time founder is use all the opportunity to talk to VC at the free consulting session. That's the kind of my personal learning because sometimes especially first time founder, when I was a first time founder, I made that mistake too. I talked to an investor, I found they're now interested in investing, I just ended. But uh, most of the time, if you just consider it as a free consulting session, you'll be able to get more information from them. Even at the last of the meeting, even they're not interested in investing, you can always ask, okay, there, is there anyone, any investor, any other people you think would be interested in talking with us or I should talk to? They probably will offer help. So that will change the, you know, the dynamic of the meeting totally if you treat it differently. And anything that they should like ignore or like stay away from? Uh, you mean the the their behavior our well i mean from a fundraising standpoint like you you probably see things that you know they should not be doing and, and anything that they should kind of keep in mind that they should kind of stay away from uh, there are lots of things founders should not do when they're fundraising the first thing is really do research for the vc you reach out to 
because we have specific set of folks. So as you have many, you see, uh, many founders reach out to me, they're doing consumer tech. I don't do consumer tech, no social, no gaming, but the founders still reach out. This is uh, lack of research. Uh, and another thing is really find the best uh, uh, channel to get an introduction. It's not necessary has to come with another uh, investor. Actually, I value founder intro even more than investor intro. If you know any founder in my portfolio or any founder I talk to work with, if they kind of recommend the new founder to me, I definitely take it seriously. So I think that's very important for a founder to think about how to get connected with the VC. Awesome. Wow, this has been, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, Lou. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you to everybody who's listening. Uh, this is uh, another episode of Off the Record. Uh, just to remind everybody, it's a podcast with the goal to build a community of founders and VCs around us so that they can both help each other make better businesses. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode. We are proud.